I'm John Atek and um, it is my great pleasure to be talking yet again with Pat Ryan and Joe Kelly, my dear friends. Hello, Thank Pat. You, John. Hi, John. Thanks for having us again. Yes. Um, it's always it's a pleasure to speak oh, with you. Yeah. yeah. I really look forward to it and I've, I've missed you. It's been far too long. Yeah. Um, so I keep personally coming back to the topic of mindfulness and because both of you are seasoned meditators I had my own time learning zazen and doing that and then of course doing training routine zero yes um, much and like I have some concerns about mindfulness mm -hmm. um, which are not yeah. to say don't do it it's to say know what you're doing and yeah. and that there are some yeah risks involved. So I, I, I think that it might be good to, um, I mean, we did not practice what was called mindfulness. No. We practiced transcendental meditation, but at its essence, it is mindfulness. Um, I think the TM organization would disagree with me on that point. Of course. But I interviewed a, a, a TM Because mindfulness can be taught in some, by so many individuals, both oh. in medical hospitals and spiritual professionals, as you, as you would call them. Uh, workshop trainings uh, can end with uh, a mindfulness exercise. So I, how it's I, defined and what its effect is on the individual, it sounds to us so much like meditation, the panacea yeah. that we were promised back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And words are different um, to describe it. And there were many forms of meditation that arose over those years. Um, but you hear, heard very little negative, if you will, about the effects of meditation. It could only always be good for all people all of the time. Yeah. And as far as I know on this earth, there is nothing that can be said to be good for everyone all the time. Well, so, yeah, and so you can so, even have too much water and drown, you know. So. You can, yeah, you can. I interviewed a, a man in New Zealand. Uh, many years ago, who had been on one of the early TM teacher training courses. And he, his assessment of the, I think it was the 1964 teacher training in India. And his assessment was that Maharishi had taken Vipassana technique of this practice of when you're bringing your attention back to something, and when you're not aware that, that your attention has moved off of that thing, and maybe it was the breath of the pasana, then you just gently come back. And yeah. when you're aware it's great, you come back. So Marshi took that, in his opinion, and added tantric mantras. So mm -hmm. instead of one using one's breath, one uses a sound mm -hmm. or a, 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 as the sort of object of meditation, not that one puts a strain. So in TM, one repeats this thought, uh, sort of innocently, not uh, And, and not you can trying. even say it now, it, eyeing, shring, without feeling that the sky is falling. I mean, <laughs> but let me just interject the, the thing about Her, Herbert Benson and the relaxation response, the man who studied right. TM, and he asked what the mantra was, what the word that you'd repeat inside your head was. And they wouldn't tell him. Mm -hmm. So he, he, I think he used the word one. One. And he ran it in comparison and said it has exactly the same effects. And, you know, unfortunately. And Maharishi then said that he was a criminal against humanity. Yeah. Because, because the, dollars and cents were lost from the coffers. Yeah, of yeah but that's not, why Mar, that's not why Maharishi uh, uh, said. There's a spiritual value, Joe. There's a spiritual that's reason. Right. And that 
the idea that you could take a sound at different levels of subtle levels of thinking, it becomes more powerful in Maharishi's model. So the, take what, $8 billion dollars that Maharishi left has well, nothing yeah, to do uh, with it. Well, well probably <laughs> a little bit, but the, in, his, in, in his cosmology, we're taking a sound and we're refining the sound to its very abstract state. So when, when someone is meditating in TM, th there's this somewhat mental repetition, they say is not a clear pronunciation, it's just a faint idea. So there's this faint idea of this thing, of this sound. So although it might start off rather uh, distinct, as one repeats it subtly, it becomes less and less distinct and more and more abstract, so it just becomes a faint idea. But when one becomes aware that one's not thinking the mantra, then one comes back to it. Yeah. And so in TM cosmology, the, the, there are two strokes of meditation. And this relates to this Vipassana because I think it's really the same thing in many ways. So in TM, there's two strokes of meditation as described within the, the, their theology. There's the inward stroke, which is the mantra, 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 mantra. And the mantra is supposed to be so charming. It's drawing itself to the source of thought. And then thoughts, 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 thoughts. So in the cosmology says that when we think the mantra, we're transcending. And when we have thoughts, we're releasing stress. And the intensity of the thought is indicative of the intensity of the, uh, the stress that's being released. It's being released. So if one is having rage and you know headache or whatever that's so intense, these very overpowering thoughts, that is just the stress that's released, this is the sign. So two strokes of meditation. So that's the cosmology or that's the framework. Mm -hmm. So he's it's essentially what Vipassana is, except he's given a reason why someone has thoughts. And so thoughts are a part of meditation in TM. There's no need to stop thinking. It's just that when you're not, uh, when you're aware you're not thinking the mantra, you come back. So someone could sit to start meditating, think mantra, 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 and then 10 minutes of thinking other things. Go, oh, I'm not thinking. And then they come back to the mantra. Yeah, so it's, likewise, it's worth saying that the National Institutes of Health spent in, in the United States spent $23 million researching transcendental meditation before deciding that it had no positive effect. Well, it, it, then they moved on to researching mindfulness and they spent $110 million without proving that that has a positive effect. But there we go. There's uh, some lawsuits filed recently against the TM organization, or, or, or and I think possibly against the government for some funding of this for PTSD for military men. Yeah. And it was one particular uh, guy, I think he was a lieutenant colonel. And after he took this TM retreat course for military PTSD people, mm -hmm. he got so freaked out by the ceremony, freaked out's a strong word, he got disturbed by the ceremony that he actually went back to his religious, whatever it was, form of uh, Christianity and got rebaptized. And he felt traumatized by the way he, he was taught because the whole setup of teaching people to meditate in DM, there's a lot of uh, spontaneity, things that you don't know that are going to happen. Hmm. So the person comes, they, they're told to bring fruit, flowers, six to 12 flowers, some three pieces of fruit and a handkerchief to learn and their money. And then you take them into a room and you have them sit. And I, it was my job at one time to get the person to take off their shoes. So you, you, you've, first of all, you have them bring strange things. There's a level of compliance. And then you tell them they have to take off their shoes. And like, people are like, I don't really want to take off my shoes. And we would have to convince them why it was good to take their shoes off. And then at some point, they were, you take this fruit, flowers, and handkerchief, you put it in a, a basket. 
and you walk with them to a room and the door opens and it's very dimly lit with a candle and incense stick and there's two chairs and there's very shiny objects and this is like they're not expecting any of this to happen mm -hmm. there's and a picture of the guru uh, a altar a little you know a table that's set up as an altar and it, it feels very um secretive mystical charming um if you're you know if you're not freaked out by the fact that you're being inducted into a form of hinduism <laughs> but it so when the person is brought into this room very quickly the teacher just asks them a couple of questions and says something the line is what we learn in private we keep in private yes the person has to agree the teacher asks them to stand gives them a flower and then the teacher starts singing the song and putting rice and incense and all these kinds of things on this tray and this goes on for about 10 minutes and it's very um, there's a lot of circular motions. It's a little bit hypnotic in itself. And the teacher all of a sudden looks at the student, makes a sweeping motion and drops to their knees, encouraging the person to drop to their knees. Mm. Now, not everybody does. And then the teacher starts whispering the mantra from, from almost inaudible to more, more and more audible until the student usually repeat. And then the student starts repeating and then you get the person to sit and you ask them just to keep on repeating quieter and more quietly, more quietly. Over, it's about, about 10 or 20 seconds in between each time you say something until you say now without moving lips or tongue. And that means to think it, <laughs> but it's, it's a very distinct way of bringing someone in. And then you let them think it for about a couple minutes. Then you say, this is transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a surprise from beginning to end. But the experiences people have are quite interesting when this happens. Yeah. So many people experience amazing effects. They feel relaxed. They feel this is like, oh, I've never felt so peaceful in my life. And other people, not so much. And so I would be there and some people would start uncontrollably shaking. They would start hyperventilating. Uh, so different people had different experiences, and this is the same that you see with the Vipassana, uh, with meditation, uh, mindfulness, yes. is that hey, a lot of people do fine, but some people don't. So I think that uh, I think that the similarities of the way TM works and the similarities of the way that most mindfulness is taught is inherently similar. Mm. Uh, it it takes the, me back to Margaret Singer's work and how she talked about the effect of meditation passive relaxation is not necessarily good for everyone. 40% of the people have negative effects. And we've known that now since the late 70s, that these negative effects are something that is, it was never mentioned in the TM literature, or in fact, in any literature when talking about meditation. We're seeing the same kinds of effects arise in certain groups that are encouraging mindfulness. So it gives that number is startling, that 40%, which I've, I've heard frequently over the last mm -hmm. decades. Um, that there's a condition called relaxation-induced anxiety. You got it. Um, and it, it may be that if you go for a run before you, you sit to meditate, you might be able to get, get through that a little bit. I know uh, G.U. Kennett, the founder of the Soto Zen sect at Mount Shasta, mm -hmm. recommend taking a bath, which is not general in, in Zen monasteries. In fact, I don't think they have baths in Zen <laughs> um, But, but there, there is this dis distinct 
this you have to understand what it is what is the objective of meditation and the objective of meditation going back more than two you know two and a half thousand years we know of is not to relax it's not to make you feel blissed out it's not to make you to, to cure depression or anxiety sadly in this country the national health service actually sponsors the use of mindfulness for the treatment of depression and anxiety and i think that's quite dangerous because you don't want more inwardness with those conditions. You want exteroception. You want to be able to connect with the world, have society, rather than being plunged into your own and, mind. Well, this is what Mark. Back, and back in the days when we were uh, litigating against transcendental meditation, and Dr. Singer would talk to us about these effects that we were experiencing, we had come to her with with what we were experiencing. She said, "Oh, it's it's not extraordinary. It's not unusual. People are." are being sold a bill of goods in reference to meditation. Um, you know, that, that, that uh, a state of positive elevated mood or energy level um, is something that, that people hope for. Uh, and in that meditation, my first experience was I had relief mm. from my previously chattering mind as, mm. as you know, the monkey mind. You yeah. know, running from place to place and, and that that whole concept. Yes. So I did have some relief, mm -hmm. but that relief was dose and time dependent. So mm -hmm. if I did it more than, say, uh, 10 minutes twice a day and started going into more and more exploration in these higher states or these altered states, what would end up happening was the effects would diminish and the, the negative side effects as expressed by the literature at that time would be experienced. So I began to have more anxiety. And as Pat stated, that was then explained away in a spiritual context as release of karmas, mm -hmm. release of past stresses, release of past lives, of, uh, of that, that kind of thing. So well, that was just called stress. That was called right. stress. Now, the they call it stress, but, but we knew what they were really intending us to believe as yeah. you became more and more involved in in the program yeah. but this 40 percent, i think that there's there's a couple studies the first study that talked about this relaxation induced anxiety or the uh, problems came out of stanford research institute and i forgot the name of the author who did this study in conjunction with the tm movement and they then suppressed was this it robert orn no, no. no it was not I, no. I, I, I'll, I'll come up with it and it may be possibly in a minute and then borbick and hyde came up with the idea of relaxation induced anxiety but there was an even earlier study where uh per, this was a small study and they were looking at people who practiced tm specifically that became dissociated or depersonalized yeah. and what this author suggested was that for the people who have a cosmology they have a, a, a worldview that says this dissociative state or this depersonalized state is a positive thing mm -hmm. that it might not be as stressful or um, difficult for them, be, be uncomfortable yeah. because they have a cosmology for it. But when someone has not absorbed the cosmology, when they start being becoming depersonalized, you realize it can become very stressful for them. So that that author, you know, indicated that they thought that it was important for people to understand like the cosmology to have to understand their experience. And so stripping the technique out of its sort of framework that it was originally developed in its cosmology can create problems. So 
the, the, after uh, Borbick and Hyde, they found all the studies about approached around 40%. Then there was a German study and then more studies since that, that indicate that some people don't do well and other people do well. And it's interesting in my own family, my mother meditated till she died. And she would ask me to check her meditation and she, it, she got relaxed. But myself and two of my sisters, my brother-in-law said to me one time, your sister becomes a royal bitch when she meditates. <laughs> she becomes angry. Mm. And, and it, but he, on the other hand, he just became peaceful. So both are true. It's just that when you come from it from a worldview or a religious view that says you need to go through this, this is how you're going to get off the planet. This is how we're going to save our soul. That there's 3.5 billion lifetimes one goes through, and this is your opportunity to get off the planet, to stop the cycle of samsara, of birth and death, then you suffer <laughs> because you, you do it. But if you don't tell people, what I found is that most people who learn quit. And my first opening to that was I was doing the second phase of TM teacher training. And so I was at a center in Florida and I had to check, I don't know, 500 people's meditation. I don't remember the number. Mm. And so we had these little card catalogs with little car cards that people had filled out when they learned to meditate. And there was alphabetical order. And when they came in for checking, you would record that they came in for checking. So the, I came home after the first phase of teacher training and I... I went to the A's and I started, I called the first person and they were like yelling at me. I don't do that anymore. I just kept on calling and I don't even think I got into the B's and I realized <laughs> that very few of the people of the thousands of cards had continued because for most people, it just didn't, it didn't stick. It didn't jive. It was uh, the Institute of Living and his name was Gluck, G-L-U-E-C-K, who did some of the early research on the number, the retention of people who were meditating. And that was significant because we were told that once you stepped onto the platform of meditation, because of its innate charm, you would stick with it. Mm -hmm. And when they found that 80% or more had stopped the practice, it certainly did not fit within the, the, the reason for, for buying the product to begin with and paying more than you know, uh, 395 for Dr. Herbert Benson's book, The Relaxation Response, and spending $150, which at that time was a substantial to learn, to learn to meditate. So it did become uh, a matter, a sales point to make sure that you know, the, the reference point was considered in evaluating the, uh, the, the, the worthiness of the practice for the mm -hmm. individual. So I, I, could I come back to yeah, some yeah, sure. yeah. before Pat, um, which I, I think is is a, a fascinating insight, and and something that perhaps hadn't clicked for me, and that is that meditation brings about a dissociated state. Mm -hmm. That's what tends to happen. You you use the term depersonalization, which is a, a term used in psychiatry to mean that you feel mm -hmm. as if you are outside of your body. You feel as you are mm -hmm. not yourself. There's also the state called derealization, where the world around you, you know, it's as if you're you're in a drug state fundamentally, and and the world around you is melting and changing and moving around. Yes. And for some people, well, some people pay money to take drugs to yes. have that experience. experience. And other people are completely 
freaked out by that experience. So that the idea that uh, dissociation is of itself a pleasant thing for some people and an unpleasant thing for others, I think is it's a very key point to say yes. that some people will react very badly to this mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. people may feel some benefit. Yes, I, I, and it's interesting, I mean, on the, in this area, there's a comment I want to make, Margaret Singer, and then I wanted to talk about a new group of people who are trying to, in some way, teach TM in a more honest way. Yeah. Uh, but Margaret talked, when I went to her, she was my therapist, about um, people are wired differently. Hmm. And so because we're not all wired the same, and she talked about this with, with large group awareness training. She says, when you apply psychotherapeutic technique evenly to a group of 300 people, some people are gonna have a great effect and some people are not gonna do too well. Because, but so a therapist is gonna, a, a skilled therapist is gonna adjust the technique that they're using. But in a large group awareness training, we're applying a, the same technique evenly to a group of people. Mm -hmm. Similarly, she said that when you people are wired differently in meditation, for some people, and she indicated for me, that that when you meditate, it's like the lid on the subconscious is lifted and emotional flooding takes place. Mm. And it doesn't get better, as the TM organization would say, it gets worse mm. over time. Other people, and for that person like me, you need active relaxation. So she was very big on weightlifting. Not mm. like I'm going to be bodybuilder, but she said, pick up a weight, feel the weight, put it down, and mm. active relaxation would be for you. And when I look at my sisters and my siblings, the ones who had the same effects of meditation that I did, they were got anxious. These were all very athletic sisters who did things very physically, and they didn't well uh, do well at all. Mom, not it was a different thing. Mm. So. That when so I, I, I think that some of us come into the program mm. with uh, either a tendency toward dissociation or not. Mm. And in the book, TM and Cult Mania by Persinger, yeah. he talked about excellent. how you, excellent yeah. book and, and how you can be brought up through the scales of hypnotizability, therefore suggestibility mm. by the practice. So if you're learning a new ideology within the TM context, you're absorbing more of that and it makes much more sense uh, as you ascend up that that hypnotizability suggestibility scale. I, I, and, I, I, and we see that happen with so many other groups who use some form of dissociative technique, yeah. which is why the context in which mindfulness is delivered becomes important to understand. What is the agenda of the trainer and how much are they insisting you do per day based on your need and tendency? Mm. For some people, I think, they can have a moment of disconnect from the, their, their world of their, you know, stressful world, five minutes, 10 minutes a day, it can do wonders for them. They can have a state of mind they can go into for others. It becomes all inclusive yeah. so that the goal becomes that, that experience, just like those of us who uh, we know, we all know people whose substance abuse problems lead to a place where they, it becomes uncontrollable. For, for some people in, in the meditation and altered states through mindfulness or meditation experience can get carried away and can be lost to themselves. And in TM, they were referred to as bliss ninnies. 
So these were people that were <laughs> addicted to the bliss state and everything was wonderful and all the harsh edges were taken off of life and everything was kind of smooth and, and comfortable as long as they were within the context of the meditative group. So there, there's three things that I have come up. Uh, one, I've been making notes because I do want to talk about this new TM group that sort of seems to yeah. be forming. So one of the perspectives that ICSA, the International Cultic Studies Association, often talks about is harm reduction. Hmm. And one of the reasons why ICSA is so into dialogue with groups and opposing viewpoints is that how do you get people to change or recognize problems if you don't dialogue with them. So can we induce some kind of harm reduction by having dialogue with people? And so that's one, one, one thing, it's sort of set the stage. The second one is a TM concept called Laetia et Vidya, which is sort of the remains of ignorance is what it translates. And I believe that whatever, whatever group you came out of, you still have a little bit of that group with you. And so I do so have- I have Whatever experiences you've had in life should still be with you. It's whether you've digested them or not, whether you've incorporated them and thought about them. If they're operating under the surface, then you're in trouble. Not so good. So yes. I have a sympathy, and I don't think that teaching PM, people TM in a clean way without all the add-ins is a problem, as long as people know there's a potential side effect, or you as a teacher say, hey, I don't think you should continue. Yes. So there is a group of people that are, have in some way broken away from the TM organization they still vehemently, fervently believe in Maharishi um, and his his ways, but they want to start. They want to teach honestly, and so two areas that they've talked about. I was just on a, a webinar with a group of them that they were talking about. Is one is we we want to be honest about the ceremony and where it comes from because we lie. This is the, the, the puja, yeah. The puja, yeah. So in the in the. Uh, second lecture, it's seven steps of learning, the second step, when you tell people about the puja, you lie. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't tell them, you, you tell them a story that's not real. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also tell them a lie about the mantra. So one, the two things these people wanted to address is, hey, we need to be honest about those things. What I, you know, I want to support this group in, because these are people who've been teaching TM for 50 years. This is their life. They're mm -hmm. 70 years old is this element that there are people that it's not good for. And if by dialogue, we can they can recognize that for some people, this isn't healthy. Mm. And they've recognized many cases where it's not healthy mm. for some people. And it's just that they have to, I think, come in at, at, into a cosmology, they're change your cosmology a little bit of why. So for a Christian, to say that belief in Jesus isn't good for some people, well, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> and that's what it's like in these type of meditation groups to tell someone that doing meditation isn't good for you is like, it's, it's an anathema, you can't- may not work for you, yeah. mm -hmm. to, a, you know, to, to a person who believes being born again is the only way to uh, fulfill God's plan for you. So I, I, I want to like, I do want to emphasize that there are people that have been practicing these techniques for long periods of time, recognize that they deceived people, recognize that the organization has these qualities, yet they still in some way, they believe in yeah. the ultimate thing. And it for them, it has worked. 
And we want to honor that, that they has worked that group of people. But we also want to acknowledge, and they maybe don't want to so much acknowledge for the people that it didn't work for, that harm was created. And I think that by dialogue, honest dialogue with people, they can learn. They can at least get some insight. And I think you do that by showing people respect. So these people that I've been dialogue with, I show them respect because I truly believe these people are doing this out of very good intention. Yes. And they, this is, they want the world to be better. It's not that they're malicious people. These are good people. Mm-hmm. And, but they do want to be clearer with, with people, whereas the mainline TM organization is not truthful. And no, so I and think that has become immensely rich. Though, yes. Of course, there's still a war going on as to who's going to inherit Mahesh's money. And I, I'm going to be, I'm just going to make a little point. I don't call that man Maharishi, which means yeah. great teacher. Yeah, I call yeah, him Mahesh because Mahesh, that's yeah, his yeah. name. That's the name, yeah. I think uh, that is his name. And I, I, uh, I applaud you for <laughs> not giving him that you know, positive um, moniker because we all Margaret's, know Margaret Singer. He isn't, he, he was an, a brilliant salesman. So you could call him Salesman Mahesh. You know, um, Margaret Singer called him Mr. Mahesh in, in courtrooms. Um, Shri Mahesh. I under, yeah, I, I, I get the uh, Maharishi thing. I mean, I think there's a habit that people have because they, people who've been in the TM movement for a long period of time have got a different worldview and they've learned things. And Maharishi had insight into human nature. He had some insight into Vedantic uh, spirituality. He had insights that in some way were brilliant and in some areas. And he had an amazing method of teaching um, and systematizing how one would teach very much like Scientology. So I, I've been trying to get the earliest versions of the teaching instructions. So I've gotten back to the, early, the ones from 1964, which are very different than the teaching methods are now, because Maharishi made a reference to L. Ron Hubbard on teacher training. There's a, on TM teacher training, on the, the th- third phase, there's a point in the training where it's, there's just videos. When he was alive, he would give it, but the video is called A Consideration of Other Systems. So at this point in teacher training, he wanted people to stand up and go to the microphone and ask about other systems of self-development. And then he would do an analysis of those systems and to show that YTM was correct and they were not hmm. correct. So I did not, I mean, there was nothing get, get, that, you know, fit the standard of uh, truth, TM spirituality. So, hmm. so, um, so someone stood up and said, Marshi about L. Ron Hubbard. And his response was, if L. Ron Hubbard was in the movement, the age of enlightenment would have dawned because of his organizational skills. <laughs> there you go. So I... Is this based almost, on the notion that rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven and Ron Hubbard would have taken all of our money away? <laughs> no, I think, I, think that, I think it was his organizational skills. And so that brings up curiosity in me because the instruction method and the whole process of teaching TM is memorized verbatim down to the lilts at the end of a sentence. Same as Hubbard, yeah. Same as Hubbard. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's like we say this, let's close our eyes. You settle yourself, you close your eyes as an example. Let's open our eyes, wait three seconds. 
Now again, let's close our eyes, wait 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Everything is exactly, and on tra teacher training, you're drilled. The instructions are 30 pages of verbatim notes that are memorized and they have yeah. to be memorized perfectly and delivered perfectly. Yes. That I always, this curiosity I have, and I've tried to reach out to some of the early teachers, many are deceased now, where, where's your connection with Hubbard? Because it is so much like auditing, some of the auditing procedures and his complimentary, uh, complimentary statements about Hubbard. Mm. There may have been something at some time where there was some crossover. Could be, or like other groups, you have disciples who were in Scientology and then they tell Marishi, this is what we did. And then maybe he modified, I don't know. But he was brilliant at systematizing a style of learning. Yeah. And for that, we, we want to get him credit. But I, I digressed he was onto- a brilliant con man. Well, he was. He was on a, uh, you know, this is somebody who went from nothing to starting university systems to, you know, being with Nobel Prize winners who he, you know, he created a way of thinking that affected the West. You know, we had first we had uh, Vivekananda in the 1880s or 1890s, then you had Yogananda come, and then Maharishi came. And these are the, some of the first people to bring Eastern thought to the West. So he had an impact on our society. Con man, not con man, an impact occurred. I'm not trying to minimize his harm, but there's one other thing, and that is about sensitivity, because we were talking about. Uh, um, so I just did my little harm reduction, the value of TM that there are people who are interested in harm reduction. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we have to honor those people and respect them because I agree. This, this, is a, this is their religion and they don't want it to hurt other people and they mm -hmm. want to be honest. So I want to give them credit for that. Yeah. One of the things that Dr. Singer talked about was the sensitivity. And this is some of the uh, um, problems with mindfulness that people become. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, uh, the sensitivity of everything in your physiology. They, people feel, some people feel pain, they feel fatigue, they feel um, their joints hurt. It's just all this intense sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So I talked to Dr. Singer about this and she said that when you dissociate from one's body and then come back to body awareness, you become aware of all of these things that were going on all along. Yeah. So the example I would use, if I point out that maybe your, your shirt is a little tight around the waist or your shoes are tight, you might feel it because I'm bringing your attention to it. It was all going on all along, but you weren't aware of it because your attention was dissociated from those things. We can't be aware of everything all the time. So when someone practices a lot of meditation and then comes back to body awareness, they tend to be hypersensitive. And yeah. so you find people that are very fragile um, from practicing. And, and, and the promise is that you will become a better you. Your body will heal as a result of the practice. And when you come back to your body and your body is aching or you're anxious and you're not feeling the benefits that were proclaimed, it has to be something in you that needs to be in, in the terms of some of our friends routed out <laughs> it has to be something inside you that needs to be relieved and that can be done through increasing amounts of meditation mindfulness or trainings that a group can offer so this can be 
the gateway for people, mindfulness, into a whole system of belief. And this is what we have to be so aware of. What is the agenda of the trainers? What are the goals of the physicians or doctors are, by sending you to a, a life coach system as opposed to an ordin, uh, you know, a, a medical professional who understands the, the, the pros and cons, pluses and minuses of any of these practices. If we don't have a clear picture of what the agenda is of the trainer and the individuals who are offering this, this relief, um in mindfulness then i think it's going to be quite dangerous for for a certain high percentage of individuals well i would offer that the majority of research the vast majority of research on meditation has been done by the tm affiliated researchers you might not know their names but they would have been professors when i was a student Mm -hmm. so the idea that meditation is beneficial for everyone a lot of it is based upon the research done on tm and they're focusing on positive effects. And that's what people reference these studies. People don't think of potential side effects. And I think that the TM movement specifically has been very good at producing lots of research and focusing on the positive things at the expense of the negative things because of cosmology, their own religious beliefs. Yeah, in the book, The, the Buddha Pill, which, which was um, put together by two... Um, people with doctorates from Oxford. Um, there's a section where what says um, that they graduate students on, on their behalf looked at somewhere over 3000 studies of meditation and less than 40 of them met the criteria for a proper scientific study. And we have to be so careful about that. Mm-hmm. that we, and again, as you say, if, if somebody's saying, look, tobacco is not harmful, I'm employed by, you know, the tobacco companies to tell you that. In, indeed, our concept of stress, that, we, mm-hmm. which we, that came from tobacco industry research uh, because cigarettes relieve stress, okay? And it, so back in the 60s, this concept of stress entered the culture, as far as I can tell, from a guy who was employed to say tobacco was a good thing. Well, Hans uh also introduced the the concept of stress and in the early 70s where uh, there was a a symposium with him and maharishi about stress he proffered that some stress was beneficial yeah of course (laughs) and 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 maharishi was stress is not so good um (laughs) this is where you know there was a little bit of tension well i I think that the definitional problem is what existed between uh, Mahesh and and Hans Selye. Hans Selye was looking as a scientist and saw eustress was something where it was a positive uh, experience, where stress was a motivator, and it, it spurred you on to positive action, um, without which you, you may sit around in in a state of blissful ignorance for the, the rest of your ninny. life. The well, blissful. I would offer that in the TM context, and, I, and I, it may be different in some of the mindfulness practices, it is impossible to do really objective research because the TM movement will not tell any researcher the process of meditating. So there is no research that has been done on using the word one compared by the TM movement, comparing it to Iang. 
There is no research on that. So there is no research that if I have a teacher and I give you a mantra, which is not the mantra I'm supposed to give you, that there's any difference in those effects. The instructional method, there's not, that doesn't exist. So recently there's uh, people who have written to the government because they're funding this, these, this programs for vets. And they're saying, what are the technique? What is the process for teaching? How can you do this? And they don't know it because it's kept from them. So there's a big chunk of the learning process that really sets the stage for the experience people have. Mm -hmm. And without that context of the way it's taught, I don't think people have the experience. Mm -hmm. So PM uses terms like unbounded awareness, feeling expansion. So they use this in the instruction. So you, what do you feel? You feel unbounded awareness. You feel you're outside your body. So you start having terms to describe what some people might think is dissociation, depersonalization, derealization. But these are now framed in different terminology. And I don't think it's different than you know, other groups. But I'm amazed at the stuff at Cheetah House uh, and at Brown with Willoughby yes. and her research on mindfulness. Mm. I had a conversation with her about, you know, why she hadn't researched TM specifically. And I, she indicated, you know, the TM organization is worth a lot of money and they have a lot of lawyers. Yep. <laughs> and criticism is not necessarily something that they take lightly, especially in th that world. Well, just uh, on an autobiographical note, you and I first met in, I think, 1991. Yes. You were over in the UK and very graciously gave me a, an interview, a very useful interview. And I'd been commissioned by uh, Collins Publishers, now HarperCollins, who at the time were the biggest publisher in the world, to write a book about TM, because I'd written okay. a book about Scientology. And I started doing interviews, and after about six months, um, you know, I was doing other things as well, but after about six months and interviewing various people, I decided I most certainly did not want to write a book about transcendental meditation because I was already being harassed enough by Scientology. Yeah, yeah. It was that simple. You know, I couldn't take on the burden. And I was shocked to find the, the damage and the dangers. I mean, um, along the way before that, in the early 80s, I had a, a one-man show in London at uh, an art gallery there. And the uh, proprietor, was a hardcore TM meditator and most certainly the most anxious human being I've ever met in my life <laughs> and completely incompetent, you know, in, in what she was doing. She was all over the place. But I, I also met um, a young woman who fractured her coccyx doing mm -hmm. the, the hopping. hopping. Yep, yep. And uh, that's something you can't cure and it's something that's awful in, in its effects. Yes. I met people who had, who told me that there were and I've read this on a number of occasions there were people who'd pretty much abandoned their children and left them to run wild because they wanted to meditate 12 hours a day and at that point you are looking at um, an addictive state you're no longer looking at something that's socially or personally healthy um, the, 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 the and have no place for evaluating who the practice is good for and who might not benefit from it yeah. they yeah. can't allow that in their sales routine, so they, in their they, approach to people. So they can't allow for the truth to be told, which is why the, the, you know, the group that's trying to mitigate and at least be honest about who they are and what their, what their actions are, are real, where they are coming from, that this is really a form of Hinduism, that these are the names of gods, that uh, this is an induction ceremony, the puja. Um, it's not just something for the teacher, it's for the student. Everyone must participate if you're to learn the practice. 
if it was just for the teacher, the teacher could do it separately and have you just walk in at the end. They, they give you a, a name and you can do that quietly, but it, it doesn't work that way. You must be a participant in the ceremony. So indeed, what's the reason behind that? And they've been able to you know, play with the courts. So, you know, once again, in, in Chicago, Illinois, there's a, a lawsuit between the uh, uh, educational community, secondary schools, and the Transcendental Meditation Movement um, in that they were started teaching TM in the high schools. So this the is lawsuit, the, law, the, the lawsuit is from the students who took it against the, the, the Chicago public schools and mm -hmm. the TM movement. Okay. Because the students said th they were forced to meditate mm -hmm. and it was against their religion. So that's stopped in, in the school system. That's yep. the lawsuit that's currently going on. Okay. But I, I, you know, we do have to give credit to people who are interested in harm reduction and moving toward honesty. And I, and I, I don't, I, I, and I'm, you know, impressed with this group of people, even though I disagree with many of their points, but that would have me dialogue with them. Um, and, and if they'll and, still talk to us, then it's probably okay. It's the point where people yeah, yeah. just become enraged or, you know, walk away and, and cannot discuss something that they're so passionately, so fervently committed to it. Willoughby Britton's a very fascinating person, a very fascinating example, yeah. because she is a mindfulness yes. uh, meditator. Miguel, Miguel uh, Farias, the mm -hmm. co-author of The Buddha Pill, is a mindfulness meditator. Yep. But in both of their cases, they've realized that, that there can be certain you know, you have to have boundaries and you have to understand what you're dealing with. So while they would both probably still advocate the use of, I'm going to call it meditation, uh, because the mindfulness coloring book and things like mm. that, you know, there's such a wide range of things in here. Uh, Willoughby Britton, of course, her first study was to, she believed she could show that mindfulness had a benefit upon sleep. Yep. And so what she found to her horror was that, in fact, her control group who did not do mindfulness had deeper, more deep sleep and woke less often than mindfulness mm -hmm. meditators. So there was obviously something that, you know, that wasn't really working properly. The, I think there's another problem, which is that mindfulness has become a, you know, where transcendental meditation was a kind of patented mm -hmm. TM, <laughs> trademarked group. Um, mindfulness has gone out into the, the public arena. So groups like, say, the New Kadampa tradition, mm -hmm. right? You know, I've interviewed Michelle Haslam, who's a double PhD in psychology, okay. was involved with them, and was really shocked by what she had to say about this group. Um, incidences of rape, incidences of homeless people being taken in and taken over. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, their violent opposition to um, the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I have questions about the Dalai Lama too, but- I, I would agree. Yeah, it's a lot to swallow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, when you talk about the and I, we're digressing a bit, but we had a, a, a case that we worked on, and there was a particular uh, Buddhist teacher um, that got the attention of the Dalai Lama. Um, his followers had a lot of money and sponsored the Dalai Lama's brother to come to uh, stay with them on Martha's Vineyard, give a speech. And that man, that teacher, I'm not going to mention his name, viciously raped 
the, his female followers. This was part of his thing. Uh, there's been many lawsuits against him. So the Dalai Lama's brother, at least, was aware that this was happening, yet he continued to accept money from the, this, these people. So this brings into question for me the Dalai Lama. Now, I see him much more as a political figure than a spiritual figure. Yes. And so if you're looking at it from a political point of view and you're trying to save your culture, you might put up with something that otherwise you wouldn't do. Hmm. Uh, he but, took $2 million from Catherine Ari at Nexium, as the vow shows. Yes. He yes. Early there. Mm -hmm. yes. He also, of course, famously, there's a photograph of him um, with um, Ozahara, the head of Om Shinrikyo. And I, mm -hmm. I agree mm -hmm. with you. He is, he is the, you know, the reincarnated king of the Tibetan mm -hmm. people and is trying to, to look after them. I think on the other hand, he's done some, and we won't stay with this subject for now, but no. he's done some very good things. He said some very positive things. So when he said to the Buddhist community, if any aspect of Buddhism was scientifically disproven, I would reject it. There was mm -hmm. tremendous alarm through the community, but that was a very you know, pragmatic and realistic thing. He's also said that, you know, he's realized that he's the same as everybody else. He's a human being. Mm -hmm. So the, the notion mm -hmm. of him being Avalokiteshvara, the 14th incarnation really? of the Bodhisattva of compassion, is pushed aside. He seems, you know, and he's, he's written very interesting books. But yes, there's that problem that he has to represent the people and make compromises so that they have enough money to live. So both are true. Armsala. Both are true. Yes. And I think that this is the case in the mindfulness world, the meditation world. It's not either or one or the other. It's a multifaceted thing. All kinds of things are true for different people because we're all different and to not respect that the differences that we have, then we would all just be the same. <laughs> and, and we're not, we're wired differently. And I, unless I, of course I, we're I, fans of life of Brian, in which case where it is put, <laughs> you are all different. There is one of them that says, I'm not. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. I'm not. <laughs> I, I came across a, a philosophical statement. <laughs> I, I, I came across a video the other day that I've been looking for for a long time. And it was an interview with me uh, about three years after I stopped meditating. Hmm. And it, we labeled the video spiritual Botox because I'm an animated person. And yeah. it, I will send you the, a link to the video. So you oh, can please do. Um, virtually nothing moves except for my lips, like almost like clutch cargo. And I gave a number of talks with Michael Langoni and he would say, put on that video tape just to talk about what it looks like when someone's dissociated <laughs> and no one could make the connection that it was me ever. Wow. Uh, because it's such a different person. When I practice a passive relaxation technique like TM, I get anxious, I get irritable, I, I get very fidgety, I get very uncomfortable. When I was in the movement, because I went on these, what I refer to as thought reform camps, these forest academy, I came to believe that when I had those adverse symptoms, they told me I was releasing stress from the current and past lives, and the only way I was going to get through that is to continue to meditate. So you sort of get in this circular logic, you get stuck in it. You know, you meditate, you get adverse effects, 
the adverse effects are described as be releasing stress. The only way you're going to get really be able to get through these adverse effects is to continue meditating. And the more you meditate, the more adverse effects, and you get stuck in the circle. So mm-hmm. I was an animated person. I became very still, uh, somehow suppressed, <laughs> somehow dissociated, realized, mm-hmm. and then slowly I became back to myself. And um, the interesting thing is, you were at an ex-members conference um, two years after leaving TM. And still, when asked to recount your experiences in the organization, it was as if a a pall came over him and he changed, his affect changed, his approach changed, the words he used to describe the 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 path, if you will, were almost those of, of a member. Yet he had distanced himself, was already working independently as an exit counselor mm-hmm. at that point. And still, when pressed on the experience, he the experience came back, and you can you can see that reflected in the video. Very I'll interesting. Send, I'll send you a link because I, I do, that phase is long gone. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's something that we we see with with people who've who've been in any group, of course, in dealing with hundreds and hundreds of Scientologists over the years. You can see people floating back into that part of their personality, the identity that that is the group. And, and I guess we all do it to some extent. We, yeah. you know, we have associated and dissociated memory. Uh, whether the word dissociation means something quite different, that an associated yeah. memory yeah. Is, is where we will feel. And so traumatic memories, PTSD is, is associated memory, where you still have the feelings from that time in the past. Whereas a dissociated or dispassionate memory is one where you can look back at it. And I think we often do it. You know, I think it when we're able to... to laugh at or find the funny side of the dreadful experiences we've had that it's indicative either that on the one hand we we don't want to think about it run away from it completely or much better that that we have incorporated those experiences and can you know we're no longer triggered we're no longer stimulated by those yeah i'm still stimulated when i recall the time that as uh, followers of uh, Swami Prakashan on the second group I was involved in after TM, uh, which was a uh, Raganuga Bhakti. Uh, we were devotees of Radha Krishna. And we saw ourselves as gopis, that there exists- Oh my God. <laughs> There's a string of language. Uh, <laughs> What's uh, a gopi? Uh, Something a gopi can, uh, somewhere? The, these are the, 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 uh, uh, the women who look after Lord Krishna. Okay. In, in that loving, blissful, way that is considered the highest stage of divine love it within the raganuga bhakti bhakti system so if you you can be a cowherd boy which is one of the myths um you can be a baby um an infant taken care of by by the 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 parents of krishna or you can be one of the consorts which would be the highest state that you know eternal blissful status and we were encouraged to uh, dress as gopis uh, at one of the celebrations. So the men, boy, were, the, the, the girls got us all, all um, saris. And here we were cross-dressing yeah. for Krishna. <laughs> cross-dressing for Krishna. <laughs> Talk about trauma. Like I, when I think about that, that there's a videotape floating out there somewhere. I've never been able to find a thing. Oh goodness please if anybody's watching and they find this i want to copy well the, the best part of it was there was this guy from long island who was like a say a regular 
Joe, an ordinary man who in his middle age had gotten attracted to this group briefly. And he ended up coming down the steps, rambling down the staircase and saying, hello, Krishna, I love you. You know, kind of like, like uh, you know, good old boy. And the whole group just burst into hilarity, laughter. Mm. At that point, we were all reined back in by Guru, who said, there's, there's nothing to laugh about here. This is the <laughs> love of God. <laughs> so we were taught, um, as, as in many groups, what would be the proper way to express oneself in that setting? Mm. So it wasn't just a matter of, you know, uh, expressing one's love for Krishna. It was in a very codified methodology. And that's what we see in, in most of the groups we're looking at. We're, we're looking at the different codes of behavior that are associated with the practices, mm. depending on if it's you know mindfulness, if it's meditative path, if it's a Buddhist path, um, what you will experience and see along the way are, are things that are only allowed within the, the approved uh, theology. The demand for if you, purity. If you, if you move outside that, you've done it wrong. Yeah. And that that wasn't what was promised. As far as I'm concerned, the, the group has held those videos and they they haven't released them because uh, there was a whole group of us all in this day of celebration of um, the Gopi's love for Krishna on uh, Janmashtami or the birthday of Lord Krishna. Hmm. This is how we he chose to, to have us celebrate it. And this was a big secret because I've been involved now in that group for four years, and it took some time to soften the uh, the, the the earth, if you will, to get us to the point where we would agree to dress up as a woman um, and perform our love embrace. Uh, we were all like almost like silly. It was almost like Monty Python. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, when they were the ladies, and you you will go to hell for what you're saying, Joe. Um, and and if if this was a celibate group as well, is that right? Not so much as no, not so much. It was, it became that. It, it, when we first joined, uh, we were told, don't worry about your sexuality, the most important thing is that you have no attachments to any human being emotionally only be emotionally attached to guru and to krishna so So go have sex with strangers but just not not your spouse this this was a real shift he 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 was almost he had a collection of people that came from varied backgrounds maybe who had been repressed uh within the tm organization because many of the people that came to swami d swami prakashanand were or uh, Prakashanand, as they as call, you don't have to call him Swami, um, were from the TM organization. And the TM organization had a certain kind of unspoken repression of sexuality. Mm-hmm. It wasn't said outright that you should be celibate. Um, at, you know, when you took the courses, they didn't promote it, but you knew the secret uh, doctrine was that you must be celibate to achieve enlightenment. Um, the Swami, on the other hand, said, oh, well, just be attached to me. Don't give your love to a partner. Don't give your love to a spouse. Your spouse will understand. You're giving your love to me and you're giving your love to Krishna. 
just be indifferent toward that person, even mm -hmm. though you may support one another in your devotion to Krishna, which meant devotion to me. So yeah. <laughs> kind of convoluted mind, you know, fuck, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, gotcha. it, it, where people could not think clearly about, well, how am I supposed to be with my spouse, with my husband, with my wife, with my partner? It was about, well, if you feel the urge, um, you, you can go have a dalliance. Um, just don't get too attached to the individual you're having a dalliance with. Because it started I need, out that way. I need all of your love. <laughs> I need all of your love. And he did prove himself to be a criminal and, and was eventually found guilty of harming, uh, sexually harming young women in his care. Okay. Um, and uh, they were the daughters of devotees that I had known as children. Um, and when I was no longer involved in the group, the group moved to Austin, Texas, and they continued their um, to build their one of the largest Hindu temples in the United States. But again, this group that you were involved in, people were very dissociated from doing in this te technique was chanting. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't so much mindfulness, but in a sense, I think it, it is because when you're chanting and you is forget what you're doing, you start chanting again. It's that idea of keeping bringing one's attention back to them to a point, an idea at, at the expense of other ones. Now, some groups like want you to force this, but groups like TM and most mindfulness groups, there's no forcing. It's just gently coming back. And that was, it's not- a process called remembrance, which meant 24 seven, yeah. when you weren't doing the actual chanting, you were thinking the name of God. So. It, it, it makes it difficult to, to work with a customer. Uh, we had a, a, a business at the time, which was a manufacturer of gifts um, in Philadelphia here. And so when you're, you know, you're trying to promote your product line of, of uh, little crystal figurines, uh, you, you need to be focused on the customer, not on God's name. It, it makes for a, a difficult conversation. George Harrison talked about spending three days driving around continental Europe, chanting Hare Krishna, yes. the Krishna mantra. And um, I'm, I, as soon as I heard that, I'm sort of, that's a really driving a car for three days without sleeping. Now, that's very dangerous. He was very lucky that nobody was hurt. I'd like to, to put in something of my own experience of meditation. I studied Zazen. I learned Zazen mm -hmm. uh, sitting Zen yep. method uh, when I was 18. Okay. It was a very long time ago in 1973. And uh, I, I learned it at Throstle Hole Priory by an, you know, an accredited um, Zen monastery, Soto Zen monastery. And I had intended to spend six months there. I was quite serious. Mm -hmm. And I left after three days. And I left because the experience was not the romantic fantasy that, that, that I had believed. Um, so uh, yes. being woken up at six o'clock in the morning by somebody banging a gong in a, a room that would house sort of 70 meditators and there were just two of us sleeping in there, only having cold water to wash in and the offer of one shower a week, it was not really good enough. But the real reason <laughs> that I left was, was that I don't like cold showers, you know, but the real reason I left was... <laughs> Because of the meditation and it was because the meditation experience was so positive for me that um i pretty much immediately in the first sort of half hour session 
found that I was looking down through lower layers of linguistic thought, mm -hmm. realizing that at the same time, I got down to about four things going on at the same time, you know, in parallel processing, not sadly great philosophical processing, mm -hmm. it was nonsense, but, and that fascinated me. Um, but I was also permitted a Monday with a meeting with the, um, the abbot. Mm -hmm. Just as a side note, if you go to Throstle Hold Priory's um, website, speaking about honesty, they mm -hmm. claim that their first abbot was somebody else because this guy yeah. was affected. He'd started, he'd grown okay. up as a Theravadin Buddhist in Scotland and mm -hmm. he then defected to the Tibetans. So um, he is uh, Daijistrathurn. So he's been wiped from the public record. Exactly, you, you, down you, the you, memory you, hole. Sanitized, yeah. Stalinist <laughs> technique. But did that introduce you to meditation for the first time? Was that your introduction? Yes. At the Zen monastery. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd been reading about Zen Buddhism and, and, you know, that was the first training I had in meditation. And I, I for a year then meditated. My meditation was upgraded. I, when I moved down to Cornwall, there was a teacher accredited by the monastery there. I went to meetings with him. Mm -hmm. And the, the method is basically breathing on the wheel where you just breathe mm -hmm. deeply and slowly. You have the pot meditation where you're filling the pot of your lungs with air. Um, and it was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it was perhaps useful, but the insight that it had given to me about the um, discursive mind, you know, the, the monkey mind, as you say, mm -hmm. the, the idea of all of these thoughts wandering around in my head. I think that was a tremendously useful thing to experience. Mm -hmm. But it didn't get any better over the years. <laughs> no, right, right. Change, I was just aware of it. Over the years, through Scientology, you have training routine zero where you sit and look yep. at a person. I think in Hindu literature, Sanskrit literature, it's called Tratak. Yep. Yes. Rajneesh used to teach it. Um, and, you know, a Scientologist I talked to said they will wipe out anybody that uses their techniques. So mm -hmm. watch out all Hindus. Yeah, yeah. Scientology is after you. Because um, you're squirrels. Their idea, but but I found, you know, when I left Scientology, I returned to meditation, and I meditated for a long time after that. Um, and but my meditation changed because it seemed to me there was a problem in meditation, which was yes, you are looking at the monkey mind and focusing your attention, your concentration, and coming back. But the problem is, in doing that, you are entering an altered state most often you know and you'll feel euphoric maybe you'll feel blissful all of this sort of stuff but you might well turn into a bliss ninny and yeah there's a lovely phrase in the german countercult world which is ausgeblist and sadly it didn't catch on but i really like that word where bliss i like it i like the sound of it yeah it sounds wonderful isn't it yeah yeah but, but, but what you described it, it let you me, know, sorry, it, sorry okay, yeah, yeah, i could yeah, just yeah it won't be very long I, I i'm sorry um that's quite all right what I found was that firstly, I needed a position to be in. And I found that lying down on a mattress with three pillows underneath my knees and one pillow under my head meant that I could lie there for a long time. If, but I then needed something to focus on. And I found you know, that these meditations were, were basically fixating. They were inducing hypnoid states and I didn't want that. So I found that by putting on very gentle music, which gave me something that was moving, 
and bring my attention back to that music by having a painting, admittedly one of my own paintings, because mm -hmm. I had to look at them sometime. Um, <laughs> I could bring my attention back to those things. And I found it so much more useful than chanting a mantra or, you know, that, that shows your own independent thought and creativity in developing your own practice. This we hear, hear rarely, that you have to stay within the context of the, of the ideology. You've moved outside that now. You've created your own practice that you've found to be most helpful. And I, I, think, think, the most useful useful. Thing, I think the most useful thing was breathing slowly and deeply. Mm -hmm. Just that, which I, mm -hmm. I do on a daily, when I wake up and when I go to sleep for a few minutes, I breathe very fully. I don't retain the breath, I just, you know, and it, it helps, it helps your digestion. It, you know, it calms you down. It probably lowers your cortisol levels a little bit. And for me, that's the, the benefit, would be the benefit of benefit. mindfulness, put everything else aside, learn how to breathe a bit more deeply and systematically, you know? Yeah, you, I think you learned, you got a knack at going into these states. And I think that that's what people that are, mm experienced meditators they just learn this knack of going into that state and yeah. it's pretty easy to go into it yeah anytime you Again, want and so there's use states there, there are not necessarily higher states you know uh, the group tries to present that as the higher state preferred state of human existence uh the dissociative state in some groups is are encouraged um the dissociative state is is useful to the group only so long as it keeps you focused on the goals of the group. If it makes you too spaced out and, and you're not being effective in your required tasks for the guru, then forget about it. You, you have to change up. I think that there's also a usefulness of this knack. If you're in pain, you have, are you, you know, you're uncomfortable, things are going on in your body, you're in the hospital, whatever, and you can unhook from that just because you have a, a skill that you learn. Yes. That's beneficial. Absolutely. Agree. And also in terms of dealing with pain, because that was part of the problem I was dealing with. And I'm happy to say that this mm -hmm. many years later, I no longer experience that pain. But because of being threatened and harassed on a daily basis for 16 years yeah. by Scientologists, um, mm -hmm. I found you know that your muscles are clenched. Your whole yes. system is clenched. And by learning to breathe deeply and learning to put your mind onto something other than the things mm -hmm. that are stressing you out, that was very useful. Thankfully, the harassment, you know, they're, they're rather busy with other things. Before the internet and safety and numbers, there was John Atack, and yeah. he's not yeah. far from all. There were a we, few. Uh, we, we heard of you. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I remember before, before we jokingly called the interweb, uh, being an old person, uh, the first exploration of it was with something called CompuServe. And, you know, to communicate, it was like backslash Y, John, plus sign. Hi, how you doing? Backslash, whatever it was. And then there was this thing called the web. And I, I remember it was a hyperlink sentence and i'm like well, what, what useful is this this makes no sense and it as soon as it started blossoming i remember speaking in the woodfields and saying you know things are going to be very different now because this becomes something you can't control oh religion scientology was born in about 1993 born. and everything changed everything changed and so 
you know, there's that thing that we have about caveat emptor, buyer beware. Um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, before the internet, it was very difficult to get information on any type of group, Scientology, TM, any of these groups. You had to go to a library. The groups often took the books out of the library. You, the people who had negative effects, that was suppressed. The only good things were told. You didn't through microfiche. <laughs> so, but, but as soon as the web came about, if you go into the Church of Scientology and you haven't Googled it, well, I think you got to, there's an issue. If you yeah, go to, to watch South Park come out of the closet, Tom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just. Or maybe read people. one of my books, you know, but. Yeah, well, people Even better. are making, <laughs> making more choices. They're making choices, but knowledge is there and we can mm -hmm. access it. And I think that this, the work of uh, at Cheetah House and other places where the adverse effects of mindfulness are being written about and that people become aware that there is that possibility, um, that's a good thing. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't have to diminish the value of mindfulness or diminish the value of a type of meditation mm -hmm. because for some people it's not good. Yeah. I think that that's what we in this world of harm reduction are, are trying to promote. And, and I, don't I, let it be your entryway into a cultic or abusive environment. A lot of times people have a unique experience in mindfulness, which then leads them to explore, oh, this meditation group is much the same as this what I've experienced in mindfulness. And they seem to take it even further. Um, but what are, what are the goals for you? What are they promoting? What is their agenda? That needs to be looked at uh, in order that you don't get caught up in something you hadn't planned on when you want to explore some methods of relaxation in a hectic world. Before we end off, I was just I was recalling a, an event that occurred with Joe, actually. He was driving with somebody who was very into uh, spirituality, and uh, it was a long drive, and she was describing the experiences she had, and Joe was describing the experiences he had in meditation that you know seeing golden lights feeling this going out to the body all these things and he commented that they were just experiences hmm. they didn't make me a better person it didn't make me anything other than who i am these were just things that happened but we put so much attention on these ideas of these experiences hmm. they're they're so charged with value and they're really not any different. And when you look at the people, the long-term Scientologists that reach these high levels, they're just like everyone else at the end of the day. And, and when you look at people who've been practicing meditation, uh, mindfulness for years and years, they're just like everybody else. <laughs> I know we, mindfulness teachers. We can have incredible experiences that, that don't come from meditation. So yeah. I, I remember when I saw Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys at the cinema the first time, I couldn't speak for 10 minutes because it had been such a remarkable set of experiences brought together. And, you know, I, I, the other week it was funny because a friend of mine was uh, criticizing Hollywood and saying how dreadful Hollywood is. And she specifically mentioned Batman. And it just happened the week before I'd been in an IMAX cinema and seen the film The Batman. And, okay. Okay, the plot and the story, who cares? But the cinematography, the beauty of this experience, and I could have gone away and therefore made that my religion. You know, I could have mm -hmm. been looking for, actually, there's a place called Gotham just down the road from me, and probably right. Batman lives there, and I could okay. walk around the Batcaves and see if I could find yeah. him and translate my experience to others. 
I'm going to add one mm. caveat here, one warning, which is mm -hmm. for a long time, um, I was concerned. The, the technique that's used in mindfulness is fundamentally zazen. It, mm. it, it's pretty much the Zen meditation. And that, that's all great. Now, um, John Kabat-Zinn, the grand guru of mindfulness, uh, mm. in, in his writings has said that um, you can put aside the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. You don't need right thought. You don't need right action and these kind of things. All you have to do is meditate yeah, and yeah. you will become compassionate and achieve this thing. After he'd said that, a few years after he said that, he started training people in the US Army. Hmm. So <laughs> let's cross this over. There is an incredible book called Zen at War by a Zen priest called Brian Victoria. Okay. And this book led to two of the Rinzai sects, I think two of them, maybe three of the Rinzai sects, finally apologizing mm -hmm. for training the Japanese military in mindfulness, mm -hmm. in Zazen. And then mm -hmm. from the restoration of the Meiji in the late 19th century, right through World War II, the whole Japanese military, the whole industrial workforce were being trained in mindfulness, in meditation, in Zazen. It then actually shifted into the corporate sector and the modern Japanese dominance, mm -hmm. all, which has slipped a little now. But mm -hmm. when in the 70s and 80s, they were the most important... Part of that was this controlling method that was being used. Mm -hmm. So, and if we look to the Nanjing massacre, one of the worst um, humanitarian crimes of all time, more than 150,000 civilians murdered. The head of, the, the man who ordered that massacre was congratulated by his Zen master for having brought Zen, true Zen to China in doing this. So we have to be very careful about what our techniques are attached to and what, what group we're, you know, we're working with in. That, that's that's yeah, very important. That's, 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 it, that's it. The, the, where we come in, you know, <laughs> yeah. we start seeing these techniques being used to control, to manipulate and uh, actually damage uh, the people who get us, who become associated with the practice. Grand, I, I think we have kicked the ball all over the pitch now. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. we have. Let me just thank the people at home oh, for, for, for watching. Uh, I'm John Atak. We greatly appreciate um, Patreon contributions. Uh, we won't actually be able to keep running for very much longer. So just five, ten bucks a month. And um, it's a big we, help. We will keep making these offerings. Um, um and otherwise we'll ignore you so <laughs> so thank you very much for watching always an incredible pleasure uh joking. always the best thank you thank you john hi john here thanks for watching we'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on patreon or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.